It's a short one. Well, good morning. I would say I'm moderately excited to share with you today. It's been a little tougher to discern what to zero in on, and there's several reasons for it. First, it's two separate letters we're looking at, two different churches, two different messages. The part I'm most confident I understand, I'm pretty sure doesn't apply to anyone listening to me. There's jail time, persecution, and martyrdom coming. Satan has permission to mess with you. And by the way, that's not an overly encouraging message to deliver. And then there are several references and topics in these letters that until I dug into some of the commentaries on what a lot of smart people think, I really had no idea what it even referred to. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Jesus promises us hidden manna, custom jewelry. The call to repent, or Jesus says that he will come with a sword in his mouth to deal with it, seems to insinuate a call to kind of inquisition-type excommunications of the church history centuries ago. The Old Testament prophet, which I am excited to talk about, has a twist in the story. And over break, I was teasing some little sprinkles out to a couple adult young adults who grew up at Grace. And when I mentioned the name Balaam, they had a blank stare. And I thought, uh-oh, I got a lot of work just to get people to know what he's talking about. Although the initial churches who received these letters would have known what Jesus' words meant, why he was upset, what they had to repent of, I don't think it's as obvious to us today. And to make matters worse, as I prayed about how the call to repent might apply to us, I started getting cold feet, realizing that if I said what I was sensing might be the application, I'd likely offend a good portion of you. So now you can understand why I contemplated calling in sick this week to Doug, and I'm only moderately excited to share with you. I titled this morning's message, Listen Up, Self-Delusion is Deadly. And here's how we're going to kind of flow this morning. We'll read the, the two letters, of course, first, and then we'll talk about the things that are clear. Jesus says, some live where Satan's rule prevails. God does not promise a force field of protection from evil, and some of the early readers would likely face martyrdom. But he also says, I see and I know the way that you are remaining faithful to me. And he says, it's going to be worth it. There will be a reward, even if the prospects of hidden manna and custom jewelry doesn't exactly float your boat. And then we realize that he says that even though we might be doing well in some aspects of our lives, when Jesus sees compromise that he deems significant, he expects us to repent and to change. Each of the letters has a common encouragement in it, which in essence says this. Discern what God's spirit wants to communicate to you. Listen up. You'll leave with hopefully a much better understanding of this Old Testament prophet Balaam. And we'll conclude by applying the punchline, listen up, self-delusion is deadly. I've asked my youngest daughter, Anna, to come up and read the letters uh, for us this morning. We'll be reading verses 8 to 17. It's page 10 if you have the journal that you're tracking with us in Revelation. If you want to use the Bible under your seat, it's 1,028. Please stand if you would while we read, uh, while Anna reads the two letters. Thanks. And, hello? It's on. It was on. I think it went dead. There you go. Hello? Okay. 
and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of the Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with the new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thanks. Lord. Lord, thank you that you have sent these two letters, and I thank you that you have something for each of us to learn from them. We ask that you would help us to listen to what your spirit is wanting us to hear. In your name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, the first letter is addressed to this church in Smyrna. Interestingly, there's nothing negative that Jesus has to say. No sin to repent of, no, no area of compromise. And he starts off by saying, I know your situation. I see your tribulation, your poverty, the slander that you're exposed to. This city um, had an honor given to it in around AD 25. The then Roman emperor Tiberius allowed them to create a temple to turn it into worship of the emperor. Now early on, or I guess the interesting thing about how Rome conquered the world is when they came to peoples with strong religious identities, they didn't make everyone convert to the Roman theologies. They let them, so in Israel, they had their temple. They got to keep worshiping Jesus. So if you were one of the conquered peoples, you got an exemption from following all the idol worship and the worship of the deities. Well, early on, Christianity was seen as a subset of Judaism, but the Jews began to differentiate themselves saying, look, they're, they're not us. And so the the cost of being a follower of Christ sometimes required some compromises. Now, as the gospel spread, and now many Romans are becoming Christians, well, they didn't get the get-out-of-worship exempt card like the Jewish people did. And so this dilemma arose. Does God call me to refuse to honor the traditions of worshiping the emperor and the various gods that were involved in the Roman culture at that time? Or can I be fitting in and syncretized, if you will? The cost of standing up against your family's religious system might mean your job. It might mean your ability to shop. And Jesus says, I've seen where you're at now, but buckle up. It's going to get worse. Satan's going to have a heyday. And his word to this church is, don't be afraid. Be faithful unto death. I'll reward you. He's not promising them a force field of protection from Satan. 
He's saying straight out, some of you are going to suffer and some of you are likely going to be killed. Now, while we in Michigan probably have never in our lifetime had a fear of being killed or put in prison because we're Christians, many places in the world today are not so fortunate. In fact, many of the partners that our missions and mobilization support are not so fortunate. I received the following two emails forwarded to me. The first one Doug forwarded to me. It's from our partners in Dehradun, India. They wrote him this on the 25th, on Wednesday. The situation has, steadily, has been steadily worsening here. Almost every day we hear about and often witness the animosity and attacks. Many followers are under lockup. Yesterday, on the 24th of January, here in Dehradun, three of our people were in a poor area, and within 30 minutes, a mob came to oppose their visit and physically attacked them. Even visitors are also being accused of coming here to India to convert. So, our considered opinion for you is better to postpone the visit to well after the middle of 2024. It was going to be one of our sites for a short-term mission trip this year. Anyone want to sign up? Or how about this one? One of our elders, John Carter, who spent many trips in his lifetime overseas, specifically he's been to Bangladesh a number of times, and there's a missionary we support named Brother Andrew who wrote John this email this week. We needed to return back to Dhaka last night due to political unrest cutting short our outreach plans. We are suffering in Bangladesh from rapid change of different government strategies. We, the ministry he's a part of, have prophesied about this matter to all Christians in almost every Bangladesh district. This is the fulfillment of the two years which Jesus has shown us in the vision. Persecution will come over us Christians very soon, for sure. Even Doug and Meg's daughter, Casey, who does the work in Nigeria, many of the women that she serves are trying to figure out how to have a livelihood because their husbands have been martyred for their faith in Nigeria. Now, I'm grateful that at least for this season of our history, our nation doesn't send Christians to jail and overtly persecute us. In fact, if we're honest, when many of us are marginalized and made fun of, it's a result of our own stupidity or lack of sensitivity many times. But for those of us for whom this either is a reality today in some parts of the world, and maybe it will be for us, the message is clear. Don't be afraid. Be faithful unto death. God will reward you. So that was Smyrna. Pergamum is a little bit of a different story. The city is about 55 miles north of Smyrna, 15 miles inland. Like Smyrna, it had the great honor of being able to have one of the reigning emperors choose that city for their temple. This one was Caesar Augustus. Back before Jesus was born, I think it was around AD 29, it says that they built this temple. But they had a lot of other worship going on as well. Dionysius, they worshipped Archelaus, the god of healing. And then at the top of the city, there was this kind of acropolis, about a thousand feet up above the plains, was a massive temple to Zeus. And a little bit down the way, a temple to Athena. Jesus says about this church, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In other words, there's a lot of bad stuff going on here. And Jesus says, you guys were faithful even when one of your people, Antipas, was martyred recently. You are holding fast despite the oppressive environment that you live in. And while as a whole the church is doing well, Jesus says, you've got something I want to address. 
you tolerate people who are teaching bad things. The problem was first that the majority was allowing a minority to exist, but the second problem was the cancer was allowed to continue to fester and they weren't taking action on it. Now the Nicolaitans who are mentioned are often perceived to be basically about the same as what this teaching of Balaam is. And the gist of it was there were some people that were saying, hey, God doesn't want us to just be persecuted. Let's syncretize. Let's kind of fit in. For example, if I'm worshiping Jesus at church, but I need to go through the perfunctory, you know, idol worship to fit in as a Roman, clearly God knows that I know it's just a piece of stone and wood. Why unnecessarily get ostracized? Many times the temple worship included a lot of sexual activity. And so there was this permissiveness that was present. Some compromises that were made. And there's something about this syncretism that bothers Jesus. And this is kind of the first inkling we get of really what the thesis is going to be. Listen up, self-delusion is deadly. You see, many followers of Jesus have a very interesting capacity to justify and rationalize the pet sins that they prefer not to get rid of. Well, that's your interpretation. I'm sure God will understand or we kind of weasel it the way that we want. We have an ability to delude ourselves and the consequences can be deadly. Listen to this descriptor of Moses. Now, when he's a kid, you know, it's a time when all the babies are being killed. He's put in a basket and Pharaoh's daughter ends up raising him, finds him in the water. He grows up part of the the royal family. Listen to what Hebrew says. This is from chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I wonder if it's possible that any of us have traded what God would prefer us to do and live like for the fleeting pleasures of sin. And now we get to the interesting part, this prophet Balaam. Verse 14 says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, the context of when this prophet shows up is they've been, the Jews have been wandering around in Egypt, I'm sorry, in the wilderness after leaving Egypt for almost 40 years. They're on the cusp of beginning to go and conquer the land, you know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And right before this, they begin to get attacked by some of the uh, neighboring kingdoms. At one point, they ask to go through the land on the highway. We promise there's a million of us. We won't, you know, steal any food. And they say, no dice. And three times in a row, they win the victory, the Israelites. And so they're beginning to settle. And now we find them at the start of chapter 22. And here's what it says. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the king, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And he was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. But he's smart. He goes, hey... Going to NATO for tanks and rocket launchers hasn't worked against God. Let's try a new strategy. So he gets together with his neighboring country, Midian, and says, look, we're going to be toast if we fight this horde. Let's hire a mercenary cursing prophet. 
he'll curse them, and that will render them liable to destruction, and then we'll be able to take them out. Oh, good idea. So they send some people over to this guy, Balaam, the prophet. They bring a bunch of money, the typical fees for the consulting project, and they show up on his door, and they go, it's your lucky day. The king of my country wants to hire you. We got the money in the, in the wagon for you. And he does what every godly Christian does when the dream job from heaven plops down. He says, well, let me ask God. Let me go pray about it. So he prays about it, and God says, no dice. You will not go with them. You shall not curse the people. They're blessed. So he goes, sorry, God said no. And they go home. The king is not easily dissuaded. He knows he doesn't have any good options besides this. So he says, I made a mistake. I didn't send the right people So he sends a bunch of more honorable people and princes, and he says, here's what I want you to start with. You didn't get the hook set right on the sales pitch. Start with this. The king will surely honor you if you come. In fact, you get a blank check. You tell us what the consulting gig is worth, and we'll pay it. And he says, look, if you were to give me his house full of silver and gold, all I can do is what God gives me permission. Let me ask God. Don't know if he was pleading with God, wanting it. You know how you sometimes really want something. You go, God, can this beautiful woman please fall in love with me? Or can I please get this dream? Can you please let me go? But anyway, God says you can go, but only do what I tell you to do. So he's now on his way back. And this is a fun little parenthesis in the story. If you've heard of the talking donkey, maybe Shrek comes to mind. This is where it comes from in the Bible, the talking donkey. I call it the road trip from dot, dot, dot. So he's on his way, and this is what we read in verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. He's on the donkey. The donkey sees the angel, veers off into the field. And Balaam does what every godly parent does on the road trip that's full of stress with the kids fighting and screaming. He gently pulls off at the rest area, prays, and says, now, darlings, God doesn't want us to be mean. No, he goes, would you stop it? So he whacks the donkey, get back on the road, right? So he's going along. Another time, the angel shows up with the sword, and now he's at a narrow place, and the donkey squeezes the leg of Balaam up against the rock, probably not wearing steel-toed cowboy boots. And he whacks them again. What's wrong with you? Get on the stinking path, right? So now we pick up at this point, and this is um, what we read in verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either left or to the right. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam was ticked, and he beat the stinking donkey. And God opens up the mouth of the donkey, and he says, why are you being so mean? Because you're making a fool out of me. If I had a gun, I'd shoot you. He says, literally, if I had a sword, I would kill you. And the donkey goes, haven't I been taking you on these journeys your whole life? Have I ever had this habit before? Well, no. And then, boom, the eyes are opened. And he sees the angel with a sword. And the angel says, why are you beating your donkey? And listen to what he says. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you. I like the way this is phrased in the NIV version, not the Bible under your seat. It says this, I'm here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. And I wonder if there are any of us here today on a journey that is a reckless journey before God. 
So he says, look, I didn't know you were there. Sorry, donkey, I was whacking you with a stick. Sorry, kids, I should have been a little bit more spirit-filled. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Sorry if I whacked you. Been there, done that. And he goes to the angel, look, I didn't know you were upset. God gave me the okay to go. Do you want me to turn around? I'll give up the job. That's fine. I'll go home. And the angel says, no, you can go. But speak only the word that I tell you. Now, in 2 Peter, there's a little vignette that talks about Balaam, and he says this. Balaam was rebuked for his own sin. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. In other words, Balaam needed to hear the message today. Listen up. Self-delusion is deadly. What's the delusion? See, I think Balaam thought he was doing nothing wrong. I haven't cursed anyone yet. What's the problem, God? And yet something's stirring in him that's been leading him down a reckless path. So now he shows up at the country. And i got to skip a lot because I don't have a lot of time. If you want extra credit this week, I'm sorry, Numbers 21 to 25 will give the whole movie for you. So it's a great story. So day one of the consulting engagement, the king takes him up on a high hill that looks out over where all the Israelites are. And he goes, there they are, curse them. And he says, let me tell you how this kind of works as a prophet, right? I go and I say, God, what's the word? And then I tell you what the word is. So let me go do my thing and I'll come back. And he comes back and, and while he's praying, God says, say this to him. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And Balaam said, what can I say? I'm a puppet. i got to repeat what God says. So far, so good. Well, he's not easily dissuaded, so he's like, tell you what, let's extend our engagement another, let's go on another journey. I'm going to give you another vantage point. Maybe if you get a better look at them, God will let you curse them. So he goes with them. And the Lord meets with him and says, this is what you should say. Behold, I received a command to bless, and I cannot revoke it. The Lord their God is, in, is with them. And Balak says, Oh, don't curse him or bless him. You know, what's going on? And he said, I said, I'm, I'm a puppet. I do what God says. Not yet dissuaded. He says, one more time, come with me. Third vantage point. Maybe Balaam's thinking, hey, this is consulting gig's getting more profitable every day I work. Out of, out of state, I get a lot of money, right? Who knows what's going on in his brain? And this is what it says in chapter 24. At the third location, God's spirit came upon him, and Balaam said this. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. At this point, the king loses his mind, and he goes, it says he struck his hands together and said, Oh, I was going to honor you and make you rich, and your God has made it so you get nothing. And again, he says, look, I said, if you gave me a house full of silver, I can't do anything that God doesn't let me do. And it says at the end of that chapter, Balaam rose and went to his place. Now, so far, it looks to me like this guy is a hero of the faith. Stands up against the king, leaves a huge commission on the table for not obeying what he was supposed to do. He looks like he's a saint. But then we read this in the next chapter. While the Israelites camped there, they committed adultery with the women of Moab. And the women invited the Israelites to their idol worship. And they ate food together that had been sacrificed. They yoked themselves with idols and God's anger was kindled. Remember the thesis. 
Balaam is delusional. delusional. That passage in Peter is in the context of other false teachers. And listen to how the context of Balaam having the donkey talk to him is written. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his sin. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, that kind of eight minutes was just to get you history so that what, we're, what Jesus is saying in Revelation is going to make sense. How mad was God at the adultery and the idol worship of his people? He was so mad that he said to Moses this in verse 4 of chapter 25, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them. And Moses says to the judges, each of you, you're responsible to kill your men who have yoked themselves to Baal. You see, God expected them to take action when the sin was revealed. And in the middle of all this drama going on, some guy blazingly says, I'm going to do what I want. Walks down Main Street with the daughter of one of the leaders of Midian, walks into his tent. And it says that Aaron, Moses' brother, was the priest. His grandson, Phinehas, saw it. He got up, took a spear, went in after the man into the chamber and speared them both. Thus the plague ended. Even so, 24,000 died. Listen to what God says about Phineas in his action. Phineas has turned my anger away since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. It was bad for the people of Moab too. God said they've harassed you with their beguiling of you. You harass them. Later in Deuteronomy, he says, no descendant of Moab can enter God's assembly. Never seek their peace or prosperity. So it's with this backdrop that Jesus says in Revelation, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might sin. See, he didn't just go home when the king was mad at him. He must have thrown a little, a little teaser, a little contingent. So I tell you what, I won't curse him, but I'll give you a piece of advice that if it works, have that wagon of gold come to my house in a couple months. If you want to defeat God's people, get them to sin. And when God disciplines and removes the blessing, they'll be liable to destruction. So what was the church in Pergamum's sin? They allowed some people that were basically saying, look, God is love. He's not into all the rules. He understands that we live in this messed up culture where compromise is kind of necessary without it being huge cost to us. And Jesus says, repent. Remove those who are the cancer or I'm going to come with my sword and take care of it. 
Sometimes we think allowing compromise is not that big of a deal. Sometimes we say, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. If they want to live that lifestyle, that's up to God, right? I wonder if God is sometimes looking for some people like Phineas that would be as jealous for his honor as he is. Now, here's where it gets dicey. I want to just warn you. Someone's, you're all going to probably be mad at me before I'm done, but this is what I feel like I'm supposed to say. Sabbath. Pretty clear Ten Commandment, right? Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. I grew up in an era where they didn't do a lot on Sunday. Sunday school, church in the morning, you could watch a game in the afternoon. You definitely wouldn't skip Sunday night church to watch the playoffs tonight. But I raised my kids in a culture where sports is Sunday. You can't have a kid on a team, it seems, without games, without practices. You know, my son's varsity basketball coach wanted 10 a.m. Saturday or Sunday practices. Ah, it's the worst possible time. You can't do 9, you can't do 11. Do I want him to rot the bench? Do I want him to play? What's got to come, you know? I think the frog in the kettle might apply to some of the decisions I've made. Look, I don't have this perfectly figured out. What I've been thinking about, though, is have I told myself a delusional story that it just doesn't matter. God, God gets that we live where Satan dwells. It's, he doesn't want our kids to all be weird, right? How about marriage in our culture? You know, when Jesus was asked about marriage by the disciples, he said, yeah, because of hard hearts, Moses permitted divorce, but what God has joined together, let no one separate. At the end of the discourse, they said, man, if it's if it's that permanent, maybe we should be single. He goes, yes, you can accept it. I wonder if our acceptance of easy divorce, multiple, look, I'm not saying it's not complicated. I'm saying, hmm, I wonder if Jesus would be as pleased with it. And how about sex before marriage? I mean, I'm astounded at the number of so-called Christians I hear who just, eh, first marriage didn't work out. We're just going to live together. I'm monogamous. God's good with it. Hmm. People that are in love saying, we'll get, we'll get engaged someday. We plan to get married, so clearly that's the same thing, isn't it? Hmm. Now, Balaam was called out for greed, right? I wonder how many of us make compromises of character in the pursuit of our living. In Colossians, we read these Words, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Hmm. Probably not very many of us having a secret Buddha idol in our houses that we also worship, right? But I wonder if any of us, in God's eyes, would be deemed to be worshiping money. And here's the tragedy to me of Balaam. Look, I don't know that this is for sure. I might be off, but this is what my gut tells me when I hear his story. I think he would look in the mirror of his bathroom if he had one back then, and he would go, God must be pretty happy that I'm his prophet. Did you see how I turned down that major commission and I never once cursed his people? There's a good chance that he had no clue just how evil the free little advice he threw out about getting him to sin was, or how reckless 
in God's eyes his journey was. So what's the call in these letters? I think the first one is, whatever our circumstances, God says, I see and I know. He knows the tribulation, but he also knows what's going on in our hearts. And he says, if you have ears, would you listen to my spirit today? It's also sobering to hear him say, loving me is not a, is not a force field of protection. He's going to purposely give Satan sway to bring opposition to some people. And he says, if that's your calling, then buck up and, and don't be living in fear and die as a soldier. I'll reward you. But he also says, listen up, self-delusion is deadly. But there's one more angle of self-delusion. I just feel like I just need to throw this one out here. I was talking with Doug recently, and he said, my greatest frustration in the majority of one-on-one counseling sessions that I have, I'm assuming primarily with men, is that this is how it goes down. The attender at Grace I'm not deluding myself. I know that it's sin. I know I'm dabbling in sin. I know that I'm not doing what God wants. And you know what, Doug? I agree. He want, God wants me to repent. But you know what? I don't want to. I just believe God's loving and forgiving and he understands. And here's how Jesus ends the letter. He says, repent. If you don't repent and take action, I'm coming with my sword, and I'm going to take action. What if Jesus isn't all meek and mild and forgiving and milk toast? What if he's actually looking to see if there's any Phineases around that are willing to take the sword and, and be as jealous for God's honor as he is? I think it could be fairly said we live where, where Satan has a throne. Yeah, they're not worshiping Zeus in Detroit. But it's not a Christian world that our kids or our grandkids are growing up in anymore. Is it possible that like the frog in the kettle, we've deluded ourselves about how Jesus feels about some of our compromises? Is it possible that some of us are on a reckless path and it's time to listen up? because the consequences are deadly. I want to end. I'm just going to say a prayer. It'll come up on the slide. And I'd just like to encourage you, if you would be willing, just to pray this silently yourself as we close and see what God will say to you. Jesus, give me ears to hear what you want me to hear. Jesus, show me where I'm deluding myself. And if there's an angel with a sword that's opposing my journey because I'm being reckless, would you open my eyes so that I stop beating my donkey? Show me what I need to repent of. So Lord, we do, we, we fall at your feet. We're a mess, you know we're a mess. Lord, would you do something that would allow us to not be content with our compromises to really 
stop taking advantage of your grace? Would you give us the courage? It might be costly to follow you wholeheartedly. We may not be able to have our cake and eat it. We might have to give up something. And whatever the hidden manna and the the gemstone with a new name means, Lord, would you just give us a heart that yearns for what heaven will be like, not just what our life is like here. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's thank Bryce. Hey, uh, Bryce gave us a little bit of homework. I'm going to add to your homework. Uh, If you have time in the week ahead, I encourage you to read the seven letters at the beginning of Revelation in one sitting. Actually, if you could do it a couple times uh, throughout the week, it will help. And as you read, listen for what's unique about each of the churches. It's going to help you to remember what we've already taught, and we still have uh, four more churches to uh, go through. It's just going to help you to put it all into context. But also listen for those repeating words that Jesus says, I see you, I know you. Uh, Those who have ears, let them hear. And also take note of the blessing for those who conquer. Every letter talks about for those who endure, for those who conquer, I have something for you. So read those letters, put them into context. It's going to help you uh, to get through uh, these and to understand more of what we're talking to, talking about. Excuse me, uh, Numbers chapters 21 through 25 will put the story uh, that Bryce so eloquently preached on into context as well. So if you want to read those, it would be great. Encourage you. Uh, to be reading, encourage you maybe if you feel like you need more to come on Tuesday nights. You don't have to sign up for that. Just come on Tuesdays at 630 and uh, we'll be diving deeper into Revelation. The group of people who prayed for you this morning, half hour before the service, uh, they just felt that there are some in the service or online that are dealing with depression, uh, some who are dealing with loneliness. And there's someone who's just struggling as a single parent and just needs a little more support and uh, care. We would love to uh, pray over you if any of those resonate with you. This morning in the first service, we had a lot of people who just had some pretty uh, severe health issues that we got a chance to just pray healing over people who got some recent cancer diagnosis and other things going on. Uh, If you are struggling with uh, your health in any way, we would love to pray for you physically, spiritually, whatever you need. Uh, You can come down front. People can pray for you here. If you're online, there's a couple numbers on the screen. If you could dial either one of those numbers, they will put you in a private Zoom room where someone who's trained uh, can pray for you uh, and walk through that with you. So thank you. Come back next week. We're going to cover the next two letters of Revelation. God bless you. See you next week.